This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohen from the City University of New York. Today, our guest is David Pedanicchio from the University of Toronto. David recently published Politics of Empowerment, Disability Rights, and the Cycle of American Policy with Stanford University Press. Our discussion was recorded on November 11, 2019. We're here with David Pedanicchio from the University of Toronto. David recently published Politics of Empowerment, Disability Rights in the Cycle of American Policy Reform with Stanford University Press. This summer, David published pieces in the Washington Post and the American Prospect, arguing that the rights and well-being of disabled Americans is under attack and that society either isn't paying attention or isn't taking the issue seriously. It's a pleasure to have you here. Welcome, David. It's wonderful being here. Thank you for having me. So let's start with your op-eds. Uh, this June, you wrote in the Washington Post that the rights of disabled Americans are under attack and that we aren't even turning our heads. What's happening? How are disabled Americans' rights under attack? I think this really gets to the heart of the of the book. And I, and I think that one of the key features of the book is, is that if you really want to, want to understand where we are today with the current state of affairs, uh, you have to know how we got here. And that means looking at the sort of political, institutional, organizational processes that got us where we are today. So when, when I was writing those, that, the op-ed, but also you know, writing the actually the conclusion of the book, you know, a lot of things were going on in the sort of the 2015, 16, 17 period that I, I think really made the book a lot more meaningful to me and hopefully to readers than, than I thought it would be. And I want to just preface before I talk about some of the problems that I think the book tries to shed some light on is that I think we should be disappointed and I think we should be angry about where we are today, particularly when it comes to sort of backtracking on, on, the, on, on guaranteed rights for this kind of a, an important and historically marginalized group. But I think if you, to readers of the book, they wouldn't be surprised that that's where we are. So, you know, next year, the Americans with Disabilities Act, you know, considered probably second to the Civil Rights Act itself, the most important piece of civil rights legislation that Congress ever passed, you know, turns 30 years old. But there are really important areas of concern right now that make it seem like we are basically stuck in a stalemate or that there's been real efforts to undermine these protections that sort of the ADA was supposed to address. So hmm. one good example is in 2017, uh, something called the ADA uh, Education and Reform Act, which sounds sort of, I guess, benign in its title. But this is yeah. the, the a, a bill that was actually supported by 12 Democrats, not just, Repo I mean, it was mostly Republican, but 12 Democrats also supported this, proposed relaxing requirements for businesses to provide reasonable accommodations. And it's interesting because advocates here saw this as, you know, another example of rights rollbacks and conservatives mm -hmm. saw it as protecting small businesses from frivolous lawsuits. So what this law does or proposed bill does is that it just makes it hard for citizens to mobilize the law by letting them immediately go to court when they see a, when they experience a sort of violation or or lack of accommodation. So basically, what ends up happening is that businesses will, would have 120 days to figure it all out, and they would have to show they don't have to actually show that they've done something. They just have to show that they're making progress. But what making progress means is not defined in the, in the bill. So a lot of people are concerned that efforts to accommodate can drag out for an indefinite amount of time. I mean, this is really flying, going in the face of, of what the ADA and laws like the ADA are supposed to do, right? They're supposed to make things more equal. They're supposed to, mm -hmm. you know, allow people with disabilities to maintain gainful employment. And this sort of, this bill is 
kind of really cutting that the, the bite out of the ADA. And that's really troubling. And I mean, there's all, all kinds of other things happening. The Trump administration has signaled its retreat from enforcing certain provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act. I mean, that's a big mm-hmm. problem. I mean, it's not just legislative. It's also sort of the administration. It's, it's also about enforcement and implementation. And it's also judicial. The courts have not historically been a friend of people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Recently, court cases, like, for example, a case about uh, accessible vending machines, the Supreme Court mm-hmm. uh, apparently with a lot of influence from the administration, decided not to hear this uh, accessible vending machines case. They also decided not to hear a case on um, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, which is a, a law, really a rights law, that was meant to desegregate education and, and to uh, allow people with disabilities to have mainstream, to be in mainstream um, educational settings. So hmm. there's a lot going on, I guess, in these three levels of government, right? Administrative, yeah. legislative, and judicial. And that's a huge problem. And I think that the book really gets at, at as to, to, to the sort of political and historical processes that, that kind of have left us where we are. When you say, you know, it's interesting uh, to hear these lawsuits described as frivolous, right? Right. And I, I get from your, you know, your writings that what's going on is when we think of these things as frivolous, we're, we're not really appreciating the depth of denial that happens when you ignore sort of the rights of disabled people. Like these are real and serious threats. And I was wondering, can you flesh that out a little to maybe some of us who might be more oblivious to, you know, to the plight of the disabled? Yeah, I mean, I think this is a really good point. And I think that, you know, when we were talking about frivolous, the idea of of treating something as frivolous or or even in Mm. the political rhetoric that, you know, a lot of conservatives bring out when when a bill is being introduced or discussed, it sort of really is an indicator not just of an institutional problem, right, but it's also an indicator of sort of a cognitive and cultural problem, right? These are barriers that exist mm-hmm. about how people understand the plight of people with disabilities, right, as I think differently than they might other historically marginalized groups. And despite that, the fact that the intention behind disability rights legislation was to bring people with disabilities closer to other historically marginalized groups and the way the law sees other historically marginalized groups, I think that that hasn't happened. And in fact, that's one of the curious things about about disability rights legislation that the book, my book talks about, right? And, 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 and that activists and legislators have recognized. And that is that, you know, you have to go back to how disability rights entered the, the political agenda to begin with. And it wasn't through the Civil Rights Act, right? The, I mean, I talk about political entrepreneurship, the idea that legislators tried to amend the Civil Rights Act, but for a variety of reasons that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so they found creative ways, politically creative ways to get rights onto the agenda. And, and how they did that was they tacked on rights language to legislation that otherwise had nothing to do with rights. So that was the mm-hmm. Rehabilitation Act, right? It was basically a social welfare bill. It wasn't a rights bill. But nonetheless, that's how rights got onto the agenda. And so for a lot of people, academics, legislators, activists, this really created a separate and people would argue, an unequal system of rights, right? And so and so I think that's the institutional part of the, the argument. But I think mm. that there's an, a cognitive and cultural side of that argument, right? And that is that that separation or that, that distinct and unique policy trajectory that sort of happened really reinforces the idea of difference, not drawing connections between people with disabilities and other historically marginalized groups. And you see this in terms of how employers understand discrimination. I mean, Mm -hmm. what we would call rational discrimination for a lot of employers and others, it isn't really discrimination at all. It's it's employers Mm -hmm. making a calculus, right, uh, that uh, 
people with disabilities are, are going to be a, you know, a hit to the bottom line. So why would any rational person hire people with disabilities? You see mm. this in how the courts have interpreted, first of all, how they define disability and also how they've interpreted what an undue hardship is to employers or how reasonable an accommodation should be. And I think it's interesting because the very same people who might, you know, more readily see acts of discrimination, uh, you know, happening or uh, targeting other groups don't necessarily see that discrimination occurring when it comes to people with disabilities. And I think that is yeah. really the big hurdle that policy and policymaking and, and even sort of the politics around it has to overcome, right? Yeah. You know, what's interesting about that is that in one sense, you would expect disabled Americans to be in a position of strength because they're, you know, they're not part of any hot political conflict, right? right. Like, I don't think, whereas maybe race or sexuality or identity, things like that are a part of hot politics. And there is a side that's fighting hard, you know, for rights for these communities. Yeah, it's almost like you would think that disabled people are in a strong position because they're not part of these polemics. But in fact, what I'm gathering from you is that like no one's fighting for them. And they actually they're in a weak position because they don't have allies. Is that is that what you're getting at? Or well, I mean, there is some, I mean, it, what's interesting about this, right, is that the that disability has gone through sort of a, different cycles of sort of being really an important part of the policy agenda. And, you know, mm -hmm. I think more recently over the last 10, 15 years, uh, it's sort of been an issue that's been sort of, it's there, but less salient, right? And I think mm -hmm. you're right in the sense that if you look at the very early, the beginnings of, of disability rights as it entered into, onto the policy agenda, I mean, almost immediately there was backlash around legislation. But of course, it wasn't framed as, oh, we don't like people with disabilities. It, it was right. really a, a, a framed as an issue of, well, this is not going to be the most efficient way to provide services, including educational services or health services, right? Because rights were pitted as in opposition to, antithetical to the efficient delivery of programs, right? Mm. And, it, and that became a very powerful way to think about legislation of all kinds. And you sort of see that even today, right? That, that for example, uh, allowing in people with disabilities the right to be in a, a mainstream educational setting, right, would produce outcomes that are bad for everybody because teachers wouldn't be able to handle students with disabilities in the classroom. They would be unable to, and this is a very popular argument, uh, for people who are opposed to this legislation, right? Uh, they, they wouldn't be able to enforce discipline because they'd be so worried that they would be sued or something. Mm. So I think that you see the way that opposition evolved. It, it really is skirting the issue, but it's not really about disability as much as it is about these laws that were passing are just basically ineffective. They actually have, you know, what's often, the term that's often used is unintended harms, right? So that has the opposite mm. effect, right? So for a good example of this is, legislators and employers will say, well, no, employers would hire people with disabilities, but because of the ADA, uh, you're mm. just increasing the cost of litigation. So of course, employers are going to stay away from hiring people with disabilities. So you see, that's the kind of rhetoric that's used to really, either to backtrack on these promises the government made to enforce these civil rights laws, right? And, and, and it's actually very, it's very troubling. I mean, it contributes to that, to that kind of problem. And there are people, of course, who are watching who are keeping vigil right i mean the disability rights movement has been a really important part of the political story of disability i think once disability rights legislation was passed right, they were really instrumental in first of all making sure that the government is paying attention to how it's enforcing those laws right and, and that's been a huge issue but also 
the disability rights movement through a variety of different tactics, right, have really brought the issue of disability to the public. I mean, I, I think that, so one of the things that the book does is that it, it really, it tries to situate the role of social movements and their ability to affect change against mm. the backdrop of how change is happening at sort of more within government, right, and, and how mm-hmm. those things are related. And I think that for a lot of legislators who were sympathetic to the to the disability rights cause, who felt that they could no longer use regular institutional channels to promote either to promote legislation or to you know enforce existing laws, they turned, they themselves turned to protesters, to activists and said, you have to take this message to the streets mm-hmm. because we have just hit a roadblock and we can't get past this hurdle. Right. So I think the movement has been a really important part of the struggle to get these issues onto sort not necessarily the policy agenda, but onto the sort of public opinion agenda, right, to what the public is paying attention to, I mean, you know, to varying degrees of success. But I think that it's important, I think what's important anyway, is that, especially with an election coming up and with Democratic primaries, is that the public needs to think more about this issue. Now, is a, there's a political opportunity now to get this issue onto the agenda mm-hmm. with this election. And I think that there there has been some momentum and, and finally, Democratic presidential candidates are talking about disability, they are bringing this onto their platforms. And I think this is important. Right? And mm-hmm. I think the movement and, and disability rights groups have been very good at keeping vigil over this and, and making sure that these issues do get onto the political agenda. You, you know, it's interesting. In your work, you 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 talk about how like uh, policy is never settled. This is a good example of that. Uh, you know, even fundamental rights, right. like human rights. It's not like a matter of they pass a bill and then you're granted these legal rights and then everything's good. It's like, you know, securing human rights, is, it seems like a constant battle. Yeah. And there's no guarantees. And I think w- one of the things that makes disability really interesting is, be- and, and I think this goes back to, again to, a, to, the, to the origins of disability rights and, and to how opposition emerged, right? And sort of if you mm-hmm. tack on rights language to a social welfare bill, right? It also makes it easier to try to cut those back because people are seeing rights not as rights, but as part of, for example, vocational rehabilitation. And you know, right. uh, we don't want to spend money on this program, so we should cut back, right? And and I think that that's part of the logic is that are these really rights, or are these really about the provision of social welfare, social services that right. during times of recession or austere times, right, that we want to cut these back, right? So again, it, what what I think is so interesting is that, you know, you get rights legislation, but then the question becomes, are rights ever conditional? And I think mm-hmm. what the disability case really reveals is that, yes, we have reached our limits. Disability rights is at the, like, the limit of how far we're willing to go, because as soon as you start talking about costs or you start pitching the argument as, as this is a cost issue, this is an efficiency issue, well, yeah. it seems that hi- history will dictate that those arguments kind of win out mm-hmm. and, and they make it a lot more palatable to backtrack on commitments to human rights uh, when we frame this as a kind of an economic argument. Yeah. Uh, I think we're much more, I think people are much more willing to swallow that than they are other kinds of other kinds of discrimination or, or rights rollbacks. And I, and I think that's been a very effective tool to people who are trying to um, protect you know, employers and businesses and others from what they see as, as you were saying before, frivolous lawsuits or laws that regulate the economy or that they tell people who they can and cannot hire yeah. and things like that. So, yeah, I think it makes it a lot more palatable. Now, that boundary is really interesting. I mean, you could imagine it being applied in a million ways, right? You could right. say like, well, it's economically inefficient not to hire children because adults are too big to get into <laughs> the gears of machinery, right. Right. you know, and I'll right. have to 
hire some expensive adults when I could just take some street children. Right. No, <laughs> you and, know, like, and I think what's sort of ironic is, you know, historically, the economic argument was what drove, eventually drove a focus by government to, to undo or address discrimination, right? Because uh -huh. vocational rehabilitation programs, you know, in their heyday between the 20s and about, you know, the early 60s, were really about getting people with disabilities into the mainstream of life through mm -hmm. work. So, of course, the government didn't want to seem hypocritical at providing uh, vocational rehabilitative, rehabilitation services. And then, you know, people with disabilities are discriminated against uh, in, the, yeah. in, in the market, in the job market, right? And so the, the argument has always been a mix of economic and moral imperative, right? That it, it's, in, it's in the country's best economic interest to get people with disabilities the kinds of opportunities, equal opportunities that they need. But I think that from when civil rights more formally that that language entered the picture, it started to become more of a challenge uh, in terms of, you know, Public educational institutions, for example, and public transit companies were among the first to say, there's no way we're going to be able to implement the kinds of things that these laws are asking us to do, right? Mm. And I think what happened really is that there's been a sort of a push and pull between let the, the Congress and the administration and various administrations to sort of figure out what disability rights should look like when they're put into practice. And unfortunately, mm -hmm. that has meant really taking a lot of the bite out of what Congress really intended when they passed things like the Rehabilitation Act and, and even subsequently the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? And what I find very, I think, very troubling is that we're talking about laws that, I mean, if you go back to the Rehabilitation Act, that are almost, let's say, 50 years old, right? So in these 50 years, let's say, in this half century, when we talk about why issue policies remain unsettled, I think every time that we have a conversation about disability rights, whether it was when the uh, ADA was supposed to be restored in 2008 or even today, right? these are all examples of how we are still questioning laws that are meant to protect basic human rights. Right. And that's really telling about, I think, the, the policy process more generally. Like, why is something this fundamental, why has it failed to be so entrenched into sort of in, within institutions, but also in, more generally in, in, in just the sort of the public consciousness. I, I find mm -hmm. that very problematic. Yeah, although, you know, it's, it is it is something, look, I'll even admit, the these are issues that like they have to be shown to me for me right. to fully comprehend, you know, like yeah. if you don't live it and if it's not close to your life, you just don't understand the, you know, the, the profound injustice of like not being able to shop Right. Not being able to work, not being able to visit a government building. like Yeah, and I think that's where protests had a big a big part to play. Uh, I spent a lot of time talking in one of the chapters of the book uh, when I talk about protests, right? One of the things that was really clear was that, you know, protests may or may not have had really that much of a direct effect on policy itself, but it brought the issue of public transit accessibility, for example, to the American public, right? People weren't paying attention to this, but you know what? They saw, for example, protesters trying to get on a bus, bus drivers denying them access to the bus. Uh, and despite those delays that it caused passengers in, in interviews done with reporters of the time, right, LA Times and New mm. York Times, they were actually very sympathetic. The public was sympathetic to, to these issues that for a long time were really just kind of constrained to policymakers. Now these issues were becoming real to everybody else. And, and mm. I think you're right that part of understanding how disability rights can really be, you know, successful uh, in terms of legislation is sort of that sort of empathetic part of it, right? That people have to understand and experience and see the kinds of problems that people 
with disabilities facing their everyday lives, right? Mm. That's a big part of understanding kind of the, the relationship between public preferences and attitudes uh, and also, and this sort of institutional, these institutional changes that, that, that occurred. That, that, and I, I think there's just kind of just this disconnect between these policies that have been around for such a long time and, a, and this lag in public attitudes. And I'm using the word public very generally. I, I include employers and businesses in that hmm. public as well. That our interests have, have not gotten closer together in, in trying hmm. to think about disability rights. It seems to be sort of, they've either grown further apart or are still quite, quite distant. And I don't know that policy has been very successful in bringing people together. That's another problem, right? It's another obstacle mm. that I don't think has an, any immediate kind of resolution, right? Or any immediate political resolution. I think it's more, it's, it's bigger than that. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, ask you another question because, you know, uh, we were talking at the ASAs this summer and, you know, a lot of what you said really blew my mind. I think that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of perspective to be gleaned from getting, you know, observing the disabled community, asking about their views. And you told me something very interesting. You told me that, you know, even though we would expect sort of the disabled community to have very uh, left views, their views aren't entirely consistent with, right. you know, the, the, the views that are, you know, the agenda that's, you know, espoused by the left. In particular, they have differing views on abortion and stem cell research right. and... Uh, assisted suicide. And uh, I was wondering maybe if you could just, you know, before we go, just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, yeah, I think this is a, a really important point. And also, I, I just want to sort of preface this by saying that a lot of social movements kind of experience these kinds of conflicts, right, when people's interests don't always come together, right? And you mm. sort of you see this with the feminist movement, etc. But I think part of what I try to do in the book is, is to, as I was saying earlier, is to link social movement emergence and also how that movement evolves over time to the kinds of institutional changes that were underway. And that means both how policies provide tools to frame grievances, but also how they, but how threat motivates social movements, right? Yeah. That, that the, the reason why we have activists mobilizing is because their rights are under threat, right? Mm. So one of the things you see is how organizations change over time, how their targets change over time, right? And also how issues evolve. So it's not, I don't think it's surprising that you already have, you know, you already have a, a, a heterogeneous constituency, mm -hmm. right? And I mean that in, in, in almost every way, right? Yeah. In terms of the type of disability, their, their, you know, their everyday experiences are very different. And also their, their politics are very different, um, which at first I think is unifying in that there's a struggle to originally to implement a broad rights agenda so that everyone could really get on board with this, uh, this you know, we need civil rights, civil rights have to be implemented. But then I think that as issues became more distinct over time, and I think all social movements kind of, you know, age into this, right? And, and, and as issues begin to just get older, or they even age out of the political agenda, you start seeing you, what ends up being emphasized as difference, differences in that constituency rather than similarities. Right. And, you know, so for example, as you were talking about earlier, right, you know, issues like right to choose and physician assisted suicide. I mean, these are both issues that inherently emphasize, I'm trying to think of the right language, right? They emphasize the screening out of members of a group. Right. It's, in fact, these issues are problematizing disability status or disability identity. They're, mm -hmm. not, they're not celebrating disability identity. Yeah. So for many activists, it's really hard to support those kinds of efforts when at the same time, we're also trying to empower and politicize a disability identity, right? And these two things seemingly do not go together. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that if you think about it in that way, uh, it, it doesn't become all that surprising that not, on several issues that are 
important to the disability rights cause that people are not going to necessarily see these issues the way uh, people who are members of other social movements or people on the left will see these issues, right? They mean something different to this constituency, right? Right. All right. David, this was a really great talk. I hope you'll be able to come back again and talk more. Yeah, it was fantastic. I really enjoyed talking with you and I hope to do it again soon. All right, take care. That was David Pedernicchio. Thanks, David. Take care. Okay, take care. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to David Pedernicchio from the University of Toronto. His book is Politics of Empowerment, Disability Rights and the Cycle of American Policy Reform with Stanford University Press. We're on the web, sociocast.org slash annex, on Twitter at sociannex, and on Facebook, The Annex Sociology Podcast. Our producer is Lisette Moreno. Music by Lena Orsa. I'm Joe Cohen. Thanks for listening.